Good morning. It is a great day, amen? Today is uh, Easter, obviously, Resurrection Sunday, where people from uh, around the globe are celebrating that something happened a while back. And, and I think some of you, you kids might know some of the story, right? When, when the gals went to go to the tomb, they found the stone was what? It was, it was rolled away, right? Rolled away. Was Jesus there? He was not. And there's angels, and they said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is not here. He's alive. So it wasn't just there was a cross where there was a, a big mess that was made of Jesus' body. And he was broken. It was that he was put into a tomb, and then on the third day he was not there because he rose from the grave, and, and that changed everything. And it continues to change everything today. A couple of months ago... Uh, I was down in uh, Chicago at the University of Chicago Hospital uh, with a couple of my sisters because one of my uh, sister's husbands, um, Scott, had been diagnosed with peritoneal cancer, which is a cancer kind of of the lining of the abdomen. And so he had to go to a specialist down there and was in surgery for about eight or more hours to have them remove 11 pounds. Of, of cancer from his abdomen region. And so we were there to be there, obviously, as a support for my sister. Um, and my brother-in-law's family also was there, and they had driven over from Iowa. They were, uh, they're from Iowa. And so we were in the, the lobby, this big lobby area, for a large chunk of the, the day. And towards the, the later part of the afternoon, there was this guy, we were sitting around, there was this guy who got off uh, the elevator. And, and he had a little spring in his step, and he was walking across the, the way, and, and he stuck out. And the reason that he stuck out was because he had an Iowa Hawkeye uh, coat on, he had an Iowa Hawkeye uh, stocking hat, gloves, and an Iowa Hawkeye backpack. Now, I'm, a, I'm an alumni from Madison, so I'm a Badger fan. I just thought this guy had horrible taste. But, but um, as it turns out, obviously my, uh, my brother-in-law's family is all from Iowa, so they're just like, yeah! Like instantly, this guy becomes like a celebrity just because he's dressed in the appropriate garb, right? And so as he, they stop him, they're like, hey, Iowa, yeah! And they stop, and we, we, we get to, to talk to him. And we find out his name is Steve Furcow. And he's like, and we're like, wow, you're really decked out in Iowa gear. What's, what's the deal, man? He's like, well, I got a great story I'd love to tell you, because I should be dead, but I'm alive. And we're like, okay, you know what? Let's hear that. You know, let's listen. That sounds like a great story. Why don't you tell us? And so it turns out Steve was, Steve Furcow was born with cystic fibrosis, which is a debilitating lung disease. At the age of 37 years old, he was struggling to find air. He could not breathe. He was on oxygen 24-7. And he was in a place where if he didn't get a double lung transplant, he would die. And so he was put onto a waiting list to get a double lung transplant. He was on that waiting list for two and a half years. But one day the call came that his lungs were, were in, his new lungs were in. And he and his wife were like, yes. This is so awesome. But you know what it takes for him to get double lung transplant, don't you? It was a 17-year-old girl named Carrie Westberg from Algona, Iowa. A volleyball player. It was the day before her prom. And she had a brain hemorrhage. See, Steve wasn't always a huge Iowa fan. But 
because a 17-year-old girl died, he was given life. And he could not stop telling everyone about it. In fact, he had in his pocket, as he was standing there, he was like, hey, you got to check this out. These articles, I got, art. He, had, he, had, he had a bunch of them. He's, Look at these articles from the, uh, the Des Moines, Upper Des Moines, from Algona. This is, the, this is my story. This is my story with me and, and Carrie. And he became this huge proponent of, of organ donations, right? Because it saved his life. She saved his life. And now he does this thing. I'll show you a picture of, of Steve. He's holding a picture of Carrie uh, in front of the John Hancock building because what he does every year now is he, he hosts this thing. It's called Carrie's Climbers where over 5,000 people climb the steps of John Hancock to raise money for respiratory um, awareness and respiratory health. Folks, because of the tragic death of Carrie Westberg, Steve Furcow was not only alive, but he's able to live and move and breathe and have his being. And he couldn't help but tell everybody about it. And that's what this day and every day should be like for those of us who have encountered Jesus Christ. This morning what we're going to do is we're going to look at another account of a guy who was changed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ and he couldn't help but tell everyone about it. And so to do that, I would invite you to grab a Bible with me. We have brown Bibles under your chairs. I encourage you to grab one and follow along. I'd, I'd love to have you read along with me as we go. We're going to be in Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17 is on page 785 in those Bibles. And as we go towards Acts, you're like, what? maybe you're here, you're like, I don't know what Acts is. Acts is a book that, that's, that's labeled actually Acts of the Apostles. Because what it is, is it it recounts the earliest followers of Jesus about what happened after Jesus died and he rose from the grave, about what happened right after that, where where 12 kind of nobodies, if you would, turned the Roman world upside down because an event happened, and it was that there, there was an empty tomb. So these 12 nobodies went out and turned the Roman world upside down. They couldn't help but share about the resurrected Jesus. But before we dive into what we're going to read, I want to give you the context of, of the guy we're going to read about. He's a guy named Paul. Some of you may be familiar with him. Some of you may know him as St. Paul or the Apostle Paul. But I need you to understand, he wasn't always referred to as St. Paul or the Apostle Paul by the early church. In fact, he was the earliest uh, records that we have really show us that Paul would have been received by followers of Jesus in the same way that we think of ISIS. In the same way that we think of ISIS, followers of Jesus would have thought of this man, Paul. Okay, Paul was a Hebrew man who happened to have uh, Roman citizenship. He was an intellectual who studied under the, the, the rabbi Gamaliel, who was a Pharisee of Pharisees, which means he was a, a Jewish religious uh, leader, if you would, or teacher. And in that role, Paul had been given a specific job to oversee this task force, if you would, to eliminate the followers of Jesus. And so what he would do is he'd send out parties, if you would, to raid the homes of followers of Jesus, find them and imprison them or kill them. That was Paul. Certainly not a saint. But then in the book of Acts, we find this day where Paul's on his way to have one of his raiding parties in Damascus and something happens. He is blinded and he hears Jesus. 
He meets and encounters Jesus. He can't see. Someone has to lead him into town. He's told that he has to go to a, a, a follower of Jesus to have him pray for him so he can see again. He does. Tell you what, the follower of Jesus who, has got, who got that one coming was like, uh, you know what, can, maybe someone else do that. I, I don't, I'd really prefer to keep my distance from Paul because he's probably going to kill me. Okay? But he does. Paul sees and he's trying to figure out what, what happened. He goes to Peter and James who had lived with Jesus and he says, help me fill in the gaps here, guys. And he figures out what, what happened. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He had met him. And he gets the gas filled. And what he does, you know what he does after that? He puts his Iowa jacket on. And he puts his Iowa hat on and gloves and backpack. And he goes out and he cannot help share that with everybody that he runs into. Even if it means, which it will, beatings, imprisonment for Paul, and eventually his own beheading. That's Paul. Now, as Paul went out to share, he wasn't only trying to share with just common folks who might maybe be duped into believing this resurrection. He went to the, the, the elite, if you would. We find him at the intellectual center of the world in Athens, which is what we're going to look at here, where we find the home of Plato, Socrates, the adopted home of Aristotle, Epicurus, and Zeno. And that is where we are in Acts chapter 17 as Paul is sharing this groundbreaking news about Jesus. So Acts chapter 17, verse 16, is where we're going to start. Let me read part of this, but before you do that, let me pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for this opportunity to learn and hear from your word about the impact of the resurrected Jesus Christ, your Son, our King. We ask that you give us wisdom, that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you are saying through this narrative. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them, he was waiting for um, Timothy and Silas, his traveling companions. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching about Preaching the good news about Jesus and, what does it say? Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, or the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest I. So here's the deal. We'll stop there for a minute. Paul was waiting for Timothy and Silas to join him in Athens. And as he is waiting, he's disturbed in his heart. Because he's looking around and he sees all these idols everywhere. He's actually experiencing some pain in his heart. Because he sees people's affections. They're misguided. And so he's like, oh, this is burning in his heart, if you would. And and he's like, I know the resurrected Jesus and the power of Jesus. The fact, I know the true God and who God is. And he couldn't help but share it. And so he went to the synagogue. He was a Pharisee. He knew all about the synagogue. He went there and reasoned there. And then he went into the marketplace with anyone who would be willing to talk to him. And he talked about Jesus. He had his coat on, his hat, his mittens, and his backpack. He was talking about Jesus. He's like, hey, let me, let me just tell you about Jesus, if you would. And as he was doing that, some of these guys from a couple of different philosophical camps get in the mix, these Epicureans and the Stoics. And they're trying to figure out what Paul is talking about. And they say, hey, Paul, we want to know more about this. So they take him to a meeting of the Areopagus. 
And the Areopagus is a, is a word, it's a Greek word that means the hill of Ares, or the Greek god of war, Mars, Mars Hill, if you would. And it wasn't just a place, it was also a group, a think tank, if you would, kind of this ancient think tank, philosophical folks kind of processing through the, the, the latest ideas. So I have a, a picture of the Areopagus uh, here from one angle. And just to, to give you some, some idea of how impactful the speech that Paul is about to give is, it is actually in bronze on the right and the bottom there. What we're about to read is right there engraved in bronze. Now I want to give you a different picture of the, of the Areopagus from, uh, an, uh, from above. This is the sets the context. So this is the hill in the forefront in front of the Temple of Athena there is um, where this took place, what we're about to read right here. So let's pick up in 22. This is where Paul was. This is where you're standing. And this is what he said. Verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown. I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. What Paul does there is he leverages a couple of stoic poets. He knew that stuff. He said, here's some of what your poets say. Think about it. Therefore, 29, since we are not God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Paul reasons with these men. He's like, hey guys, uh, hats off to you for your devotion to your religion. Wow, you guys, when it comes to worship, you guys have nailed it. Okay? I I was walking around, I even found, I looked at all your objects of worship, I even found an altar that says, to an unknown God. Now, if you wouldn't mind, I would like to share with you about this God that you do not know. And so he begins to do that. He says, guys, the God who made the world and everything in it can't be contained in the temple, big building, can't certainly reside in the little statue that you can make with your own hands. In fact, anything that you make with your own hands is not worthy of your worship, right? Because it's not God. He's like, come on, guys, think about this. Now, as we go through this, some of you might be thinking, you know what, Troy? Okay, I get the whole statue thing, but that was a really long time ago. They thought the world was flat back then, too. Okay, so um, we've come a long ways. We don't worship little statues and burn incense before little altars anymore uh, today. And I get that. I do get that. But here's the thing. Just because we don't call ourselves Stoics or Epicureans doesn't mean that we still don't hold to those philosophies. We just don't name them. For example, at the, at the, at the core of what the Epicurean philosophy is about, it is about the avoidance of pain. 
the avoidance of pain. Tell me, in our context and culture, that we do not worship that idea. That at all costs, we would do anything to avoid pain and increase pleasure. The Stoics, at the Stoic, at the core of the Stoic philosophy is actually something called materialism. Have you ever heard of it? Tell me in our context, in our culture, that we do not worship materialism. And I, I'm with you. I, I, you know, we may not have little altars all over the place, uh, little idols, um, but I can tell you this. After being in the city here in West Bend for 11 years and talking to hundreds and hundreds of people and learning stories, I have been looking around in my own life and in the lives of those I know, and, and I have been observing our objects of worship. And while we may not have altars that we have out, that we burn incense to, we still have altars in our lives. Okay? Things that we put on the altar, that, things that are actually, might not be bad things, folks, but things that we elevate above God. Let me give you some examples. Let's see what we got in here. Um, as crazy as this one sounds, family. God designed family. God loves family. God is all for family. But if we elevate our family above who God is, we have put our family on the altar and we worship them. What else we got in here? Here's some of my wife's makeup I stole. I hope she didn't need this this morning. Um, appearance. Okay? How everything looks on the outside. We have to keep a facade up. We have to have the, the status look nice because we worship how people perceive us. That's a golf ball. I really like golf. But sometimes what we do is we think about retirement and just what we could do once we get past it. We just worship the fact that we can just go golf and do whatever we want all the time. We elevate that. God loves recreation. He made it. It was His idea. But it's not meant to be elevated above Him. What else we got? How about entertainment? Les Mis, DVD, Blu-ray. It's a great one. But sometimes we can elevate entertainment Above God saying, we need to be entertained at all costs. I just need to be entertained. What else? That one is pretty self-explanatory. All right. Um, this one's very prevalent. I only had a five. We can elevate money. We can elevate money to the place where we worship it. All that we do, all of our energy, everything that we expend is, is, is to, to, to this. Above God, above everything else, is, is money. Dare I, dare I even, you should, kids, wear bike helmets, okay? Wear them, they're good for you. However, this is just a symbol of comfort and safety, that we elevate control and comfort and safety above everything else in our lives, so that nothing can happen to anybody, it's, it can't, and we will do anything that we can. Baseball glove. Baseball's, Luke, you like baseball, right? So baseball is great. Kids' activities are great, folks. You should have your kids be involved in stuff. But when their activities become what you worship, we're off. We're off. I think that's probably about it. There was one in here I probably shouldn't take out. It's a little explicit, but you probably know what I'm referring to. Paul says, I see your objects of worship, that you are very religious indeed. He's like, none of these things are worthy of your heart and your worship. 
But there is a God who made the world and who made you, and He's the only one worthy of your worship. And He's not far, Paul says, He's not far. And here's what we do. It's, Paul's like, hey, we find ourselves groping around. Like groping around like, oh, we have a heart that was made to worship, folks. We have a heart that was made to worship. You know it. And so what we do is we grope around and go, oh, I need to worship something. And then we find, oh, yes. Well, I found something. It's like, no, no, that's not what we should worship. But God is not far away. He's near. And I'm sure Paul's like, you've got to trust me. You've got to trust me. I've seen it. It's changed everything for me. God showed up. He took on flesh to restore the hearts of worship that we have to the rightful places of worship in God alone. And God has put you, Paul writes in verse 27, God has put you where you are so that you would seek God, perhaps reach out to Him and find Him. And I'll tell you, there's, there's there's a good chance, I believe, that you may be where God has you right now, like right now. Because He desires for you to seek Him, to perhaps reach out for Him and to find Him today. He's not far from any one of you. But folks, when we exchange God for these other things, it may not, again, be bad. I was even convicted. Let me, I forgot one. I have a passion for marriage. I think God does too. But sometimes I was convicted this week. Sometimes I can take marriage and elevate it above God. We can't do that. When we exchange these things and we take them and we, we don't worship God, what happens is brokenness. Brokenness in our identities, brokenness in our relationship, brokenness in our motivations. And folks, that brokenness results in sin, selfishness, and unrighteousness, which Paul says here, God will judge. Judge that. He has to if he's, ju- if he's just. But I know that may sound harsh. If you're like, why is God judging? Here's, here's what you've got to keep in mind. Please don't forget who says that. Paul says, Paul's the one talking about judgment here. And folks, let me tell you, if anyone should be judged, it should be Paul. Don't forget he killed Christians. Like He killed Christians. He wrote himself and said, of all the sinners, I'm the worst. You can't out-sin Paul. If anyone should be judged, it should be Paul. And yet here he's saying, God will judge. And Paul's not afraid of it. You know why he's not afraid of it? Because he found something else out. That God has appointed Jesus to be that judge. And not just appointed to be the judge, but to have the judgment poured out on him. And Paul discovers that Jesus had died in his place, in your place, in my place. And that when Jesus rose from the death that Paul deserved, that you deserved, that I deserved, when Jesus rose from that death, he proved that God has judged the world in righteousness because the only one who was ever truly righteous died so that we who are unrighteous might exchange our brokenness for Jesus' perfection, our sins for His sinlessness. And, but you know what else? He didn't just die, He rose. So that we might have life. And so this great news, Paul pleads with the audience in Athens to turn or to repent. He's like, no, this way. Not this way, this way. Turn, repent. And the tra- challenge is still here true for us today. He had his Iowa jacket on, his coat, mittens, and went out and told everybody about it. Now, there were three different responses to his message of Jesus and the resurrection. Let's see him as we finish this text, verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, number one, some of them sneered. That's one response. But others said, number two group, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council 
Third group, verse 34. A few men uh, became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. So there's three different responses here. Three responses to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. The first one is sneer. Now, there may be some of you in here who are in that camp, and you're kind of like, resurrection Jesus, how you figure Okay? And for you, you're like, you're here because this is somehow the gateway to a really nice brunch okay, that, that grandma or someone's going to like buy for you. And you're like, this is totally awesome, but I know we've got to endure this thing first. So here's the deal. First of all, I want to encourage you, we're getting there. We're, all, we're like more than halfway done. Okay? So hang in there. But here, here's what I want you to know. If you're a place, in your place where you sneer at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I just need you to know that you are not alone. You're not alone. Paul sneered too. Paul sneered. But then something changed. And perhaps it will change for you. If that's you in the sneer group, I would ask you to consider a couple things, though. I, will, I am convinced that, you may not know this or not, but you worship something or someone. I am totally convinced. You worship someone or something. I would just ask you to consider what is it that you worship? Who is it that you worship? And my second question is, is that... Or are they worthy? Are they truly worthy of your worship? I'd ask you to consider that if you're in that first group. Second group. Second group said, hey, you know what? We want to learn more about this. We're not in the sneering camp, but we're not in the hook, line, and sinker camp either. And some of you are here this morning, and you are in that camp. You're kind of like, yeah, I think I'd like to learn more about it. I just don't know kind of what to do about it. You know. Here's what I encourage you to do. A couple things. First one is um, ask... God, if he would reveal himself to you. Have you ever done that? I can't tell you how that might play out, how he might or might not answer that. I mean, I don't know if you should say, hey, you need to throw a mountain into the sea. I'll let you figure that out. But have you ever asked God and say, God, I feel like I'm searching and groping, but would you just reveal yourself to me in some way? So I would ask you to pray that. Secondly, though, I'd ask you to know that when when Jesus, he spoke some things and he said, "Um, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And so if you want to know what God is like, Jesus says, look at me. And what we have here in our hands, in our own language, is access to the words of Jesus Christ. And so what I encourage you in the second group to do is to say, I'm just going to take Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, pick any one of them and start to read through the words of Jesus and say, Jesus, what, are, what is Jesus saying here in this? He has revealed himself. And then thirdly, if you're here... Um, what I ask you to do? You say, I want to learn more. Here's what I ask you to do. Find a follower of Jesus and buy them coffee. You should, you should know, you probably should know followers of Jesus because they should be different. They should be different enough that you'd be like, there's something different about them. They have a peace. They have a hope. They have a joy. Um, and you probably have one in your mind. They might have brought you here today. I don't know. They may be praying for you to ask them for that. Hey, let's go to coffee. I just want to talk to you about Jesus. But actually, hopefully they'll do less talking and more listening. And just hearing the questions that you might have and process through. But, but, but find somebody. If you don't know a Christian, please find me and I'll, I know a few. I'll connect you up with one. I'd love to talk to you about that myself. That's the second group. The third group we find in this account in response to the resurrection of Jesus Christ is those who believe. And family, if you're here today and you fall in this third category, which I would assume there are a decent amount of you. If that's you, then brothers and sisters, we, we need to be living lives that are a passionate display of the love and the grace that we have been shown in Christ who died and who 
was alive again and who saved us. Steve Furcow could not stop talking about Carrie because by her death he was delivered. By her pain he was protected. By her sacrifice he was sustained. By her tragedy he was triumphant. And because of her death, literally he now lives and moves and has his being and breathes. Brothers and sisters, if we really believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, if we really believe he was raised from the dead, and we understand that he changes everything, that we have been given new life with him, then we too, like Steve, he couldn't stop talking about Carrie. We need to find ourselves in a place where we cannot stop talking about Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you. We thank you that you um, have never been far away, but that you have been near to, to us. You've been so near that you took on flesh in your Son, Jesus Christ, our King. You have been so near that you have experienced the pain of this life, the agony. You've been so near that when it says Paul was distressed about the idols, Paul had no idea how distressed you were when you saw that our heart's affections were in the wrong direction. And you desire for us to seek, to grope if we have to, because you're not far away. Father, I ask if there's anyone here today they're in a place where they want to find you, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to them. That they would seek you and find you because you are right here. And it's possible that you're right here because your son Jesus rose. And he ascended into heaven and he sent his spirit saying, I will not just be near you, I will be in you if you trust in me. Father, maybe there's someone here who said, I, I want to trust. And right now, Father, would you reveal yourself? And Father, for those of us who have done that, may we not get sidetracked. May we not get dis- distracted from what you have called and created us for, that you have restored our hearts to the right worship of you. Help us to do so as we go, as we live, as we love, because we've been loved. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Good all God's people said. Amen. The resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, changed everything for Paul, continues to change everything for people around the world today. And I um, wanted to um, do one more thing, and that is to hear testimony of someone whose life has been changed and continues to be changed by the power of the resurrected Jesus Christ. And so to do that, I'm going to bring up um, dear friend, sister in Christ, uh, Courtney Vogel. Courtney, why don't you come on up here? Um, she's going to share some of her story uh, with us this morning. Why don't we give Courtney a round of applause? Hi, Courtney. Hi. Courtney, um, Jesus has changed your life and is continuing to change your life. Why don't you get us kind of up to speed with kind of what's been happening? Okay, well, to go way back, um, I was born premature. 
Um, so because of that, I walk differently. Um, I always have. I always will. And I've had a lot of surgeries as a young kid and went through a lot of physical therapy. So I've always kind of felt different and known that I was different. Um, But it wasn't until recently, the pregnancy hormones do not help. Um, It wasn't until recently that I really have been struck with a lot of feelings of inadequacy. Um, Not being able to keep up with my young son or um, do some things that maybe my husband and I would like to do, like uh, rollerblading or ice skating or things like that. Um, So in wrestling with that, Um, I kind of pushed it off to the side and just lived day-to-day life and um, started having a reoccurring nightmare over and over and over um, where I was in some sort of hospital physical therapy type setting and they were analyzing my son for whatever reason and they wanted me to do this obstacle course with him to test his physical ability. And as I was doing the obstacle course, the person in the dream was like, you're doing this all wrong. You're doing this all wrong, and you're not even a good example. <laughs> to your son. And... Uh, Um, I would wake up from this nightmare feeling really, really inadequate. Um, Just really struggling with, am I enough for my son? Am I enough for my husband? And um, it just, it felt like an attack. because it just kept happening over and over and over. I'm sure that um, everyone probably in the room can relate to feeling inadequate in some way, shape, or form. So, Courtney, in the middle of that inadequacy, um, what, what, how has that, has that changed? What's happened? Is there, is there anything that's changed? Um, well, I called you, <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> We started, we started talking about, you know, what, what does this mean and how do I kind of process through this instead of being struck with this same nightmare night after night after night. And I remember being on the phone and saying, you know, I, I just feel so inadequate. And you, in love, said, well, you are. That's what we call shepherding compassion, folks, uh, right there. And uh, after I kind of got over the shock. Um, I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of calls after this. You know. I, I stopped for a minute, though, and thought about it. And I thought, you know, you're right. Like, I've been fighting to be 
this perfect person that no matter what I do, no matter if I walked perfectly and I could go rollerblading and ice skating and everything, I still wouldn't be adequate. I wouldn't be. But Jesus Christ is. Amen. And I never really thought of it that way. I kind of thought it was my responsibility to be a certain way for my son or be a certain way for my husband, never really thinking that Christ will give me what I need. It might not look like what I thought it would look like, but he will give me what I need. And so that evening, the nightmare started again. But this time when the person said, you are completely inadequate, I, in the dream, said, you're right. I am completely inadequate, but Jesus isn't. And the whole tone of the dream changed. Everything stopped, and I woke up feeling refreshed and hopeful and knowing that it was going to be okay, that God would provide me with what I needed. Praise Jesus. So, um, have you had any more nightmares? No. Not since then? No. Praise God for that. Amen. Uh, Courtney, uh, does that mean that everything is perfect? Everything is perfect now? No, not at all. Um, It's a daily, uh, sometimes minute by minute dependence on Jesus. And I think I'm learning that because I have this constant physical reminder, I need to always go to Jesus throughout the day when I feel inadequate to say, in my weakness, you are strong. You are fully adequate when I am completely inadequate. Um, And so a lot of times that happens multiple times a day. Um, But it's a work in progress. And Jesus is providing me with what I need. Amen. Amen. Would you stand? Would you all stand? Uh, We're going to pray. And then we're going to sing. Gracious Father, thank you for what you continue to do by the power of your risen Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that Courtney's testimony reminds us is that, that while we are consistently inadequate, Jesus is adequate. Jesus is adequate. Jesus provides. He is the answer to our inadequacy. May He be lifted up. May we praise Him and give Him glory for what He has done is doing and will do in our lives. We pray this in His name and praise Him, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen.